as you pass There are signboards on the windows Saying, wait here, second class And to me, the whir and thunder Cluck of running gear Seems to be forever saying, saying Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here my advice to any young Australian writer whose talent has been recognized would be to go steerage, stowaway, swim, and seek London, Yankee Land, or Timbuktu, rather than stay in Australia till his genius turned to gall or beer. Or, failing this, and still in the interests of human nature and literature, to study elementary anatomy, especially as applies to the cranium, and then shoot himself carefully with the aid of a looking glass. Anne-Marie Hansen just shared an excerpt from Henry Lawson's controversial 1899 article, Pursuing Literature in Australia. I'm Professor Gregory Bryan, and together with Anne-Marie, in today's episode of the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast, we discuss Lawson's time in London and some of his writings about it. Before we begin, we again express... Thanks to John Schumann and David Manier for kindly granting us permission to use musical excerpts from the Lawson album. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Welcome to you, Dr. Brian. Now, that opening quotation is rather startling, and it suggests Lawson's dissatisfaction or disgust with, the, with Australia, um, perhaps the same disgust that prompted his New Zealand experiences in 1893, 96, and 97, is heightened by this time, by 1899. He seems, to put it mildly, disenchanted with the Australian literary scene. I'm wondering if you could explain what has happened and if anything in particular happened during these years that led Lawson to express such a bleak and desperate outlook. I think that I've previously mentioned that for Henry, the grass was always greener on the other side of the fence. And in this particular instance, I think that the other side of the fence happened to be England. So, I mean, certainly one of the significant things that happened is that he now has a second child. So we had mentioned in, in talking about New Zealand, I mentioned that uh, his firstborn son, Jim, was born in New Zealand, and that was in February 1898. So we're now two years later, and the 11th of February 1900, his daughter is born. She's actually named Bertha and, and named after her mother, but they call her Barter. So I suspect that that's at least a part of it is that he has this growing family and, and therefore feels a need for more money. And the ongoing complaint or one of the ongoing complaints that Henry has is that he just doesn't have enough money because he's not being financially rewarded in the way that he thinks that he should be for the contribution that he's making to Australia and to Australian literature specifically. That's the heart of it here, is that he sees this grass being greener elsewhere. In this case, he, he thinks that he can find fame and fortune uh, in England, and so he has made up his mind. And, you know, this, was, this is certainly something that he's been thinking about for a while. It's something that he was thinking about when he left New Zealand, the, you know, after his third trip there, 
when his son Jim was born. So he's been looking for a way to to find more money, and um, he sees the bigger market of of England as as a means to that uh, to that increased financial reward. And so he publishes this piece that uh, that we had as our opening quote as an extract from that piece, Pursuing Literature in Australia. And what he's saying is that, uh, you know, that it's not a good pursuit. And so he thinks that, uh, well, his advice is that people should go to England or America or Timbuktu or failing that, um, that they should shoot themselves, which, you know, is obviously a very bleak um, set of options, uh, especially that last one. But that's how he's feeling. And so this is published in the bulletin, and it draws a lot of criticism, as one might expect. A.G. Stevens, of course, is the editor of The Red Page, and he initially publishes a, a collection of what they would have been letters to the editor, complaints from others about Henry Lawson's negative attitude, and, and uh, A.G. Stevens himself publishes a response. But so in, uh, in the bulletin, the responses include one from his good friend, from Henry's good friend, Ted Brady. Now, you may recall that when Henry went to Burke, the person who hatched the plan with Archibald was Ted Brady. So, I mean, these are two really good friends. But Ted Brady's not at all impressed with Henry's uh, Pursuing Literature in Australia article. Well, the problem, he says, is not so much Australia, it's the person, it's you, Henry, is, is essentially what he says. Ted Brady says, is he makes reference to this article. And when we spoke about New Zealand, one of the excerpts that we looked at there was when Henry talked about how he was working on this telegraph line and working very hard, and he got so, you know, he's working so hard that he, you know, he wasn't reading or writing. And this is what uh, Ted Brady said. Lawson tells us in his autobiography how hard graft agreed with him. After four or five months of it, he was too healthy to read or write or bother about it. He was so healthy that the importance of literary recognition was as nothing to the importance of frequent plum duff. And you might remember that Henry said the only thing he had to complain about was when the cook didn't provide this uh, plum duff at regular enough intervals. So, so Ted Brady says, His grievance was transformed from the editor to the cook, but he was still the man with a grievance. And that is a brilliantly uh, worded retort. What he's saying is, you know, Henry, you're always complaining about something. In that particular instance, you weren't complaining about an editor because you were, you'd sort of, uh, I guess, lost this ambition with journal, with um, literature and writing. Um, but you still had something to complain about, and it was the cook. And and I think that that's uh, uh, the heart of Ted Brady's response here is just to say, you know, just stop complaining and uh, look at yourself because that's where the problem lies. And, and Ted Brady said, and I am not speaking as one absolutely unacquainted with the difficulties which Lawson enumerates in his experiences, when I assert that it is easier to live on the continent of Australia and to live freely and well than on any other civilized section of this planet. So that Ted Brady, you know, I, I know, you know, he's a writer, I know what Henry's talking about, but he's completely misrepresenting the situation here in Australia. 
And then Ted Brady goes on and, and talks about his own personal acquaintance or his friendship, in fact, with Henry. And he knows that Henry's, you know, had difficulties. Lawson has suffered a great deal. I have reasons for knowing that he has not overstated his facts. And admirers of his undoubted genius cannot fail to be absolutely sorry for the picture he paints of his experiences in the pursuit of literature. But when drawing a moral from his own misfortunes, he advises the young Australian writer to flee his native country as a land accursed, to seek London, Yankee land or Timbuktu rather than stay in Australia, or failing this to shoot himself carefully with the aid of a looking glass, I am forced to rise as one young Australian writer and announce that I am not taking any. This, our native country, is good enough for some of us still. So that's Ted Brady's position. Australia is still good enough for me, Henry, and you just need to quit complaining and perhaps it will be good for you too. My advice to young Australian writers, uh, Ted Brady says, is simply keep your bowels open and trust to the Lord. Nobody starves in this country, but nearly everybody has a chance of drawing a cup winner. It will be found then that the men and not the country are responsible for the gloom and misery of the song, he then uh, concludes. So, you know, pessimists such as yourself, you're responsible. It's, it's you as a person rather than your country that, uh, I guess, motivates or uh, inspires some of the miserable or negative uh, feelings that you express and uh, so that's, a, I think, from a friend, from, from one of his mates, that's a pretty hard-hitting response. And, and A.J. Stevens was equally or even more hard-hitting, perhaps. Brady's response was on February the 11th, so about three weeks later. And then the following week, in his literary magazine, uh, The Book Fellow, which was um, connected to the bulletin, uh, A.J. Stevens responded in this way. He wrote a piece called Lawson and Literature, and he, he said, plainly, this young man, so talking about Lawson, this young man does not know when he is well off, and he repeats some of the same ideas that Ted Brady had expressed in terms of the fact that Henry Lawson's book sales are actually really good for a small market like Australia. So both Brady and A.G. Stevens point that out, that he can't expect... Uh, voluminous sales when there is such a small population in Australia. And he also says that Henry Lawson has no no head for business, is what uh, Stephen says. He has no head for business. And then he goes on and says, on several occasions, he has honoured me by asking for business advice. However, Stephen says that, that that request for advice, he says, it was invariably after he had signed, sealed, and delivered himself up by legal agreement, which held through fire and water. So Henry's already signed these bad contracts, and then he comes to me for advice. So Stephen said, well, of course, that, that's senseless. Stephen's also said, he reckons loosely in money matters. He, and then in what's a very thinly veiled swipe at his... Uh, drinking habits, he says, he is sociable to excess, and so on. 
which again is sort of an understated way of saying any money he gets, he drinks away or, you know, wastes at the pub anyway. And that's a big reason why he needs more money is because he wastes what he does have. Enthusiastic praise has convinced Lawson of his merits, but he has hardly begun to be conscious of his defects. So, you know, A.G. Stevens is saying, he, you know, Henry, you actually got a big head and you need to pull yourself in a little bit and recognize that uh, there are still areas that you can improve. And if you do so, perhaps you will, you know, earn even more money, whether it's here or abroad. Perhaps we are too enthusiastic in Australia, A.G. Stevens said. And then again, that idea, in proportion to its population, Australia buys verse more liberally than any country in the world. And then speaking of his prose, he said, he has sold 7,000 volumes of his prose. Uh, so that, that would be uh, referring to um, uh, while the Billy Boyles. And gives Australian authors the alternative of, of London or suicide. Why? There is doubtfully a writer in the world who can command such sales for reprinted matter of the same kind and quality. So remember, of course, that this, you know, his books are consisting of work that has already been published in the Bulletin and in other newspapers and journals and things. So it's reprinted matter. And then again, plainly, this young man does not know when he is well off. And then Stevens, to be clear, he says, I have set things down in spirit, not of condemnation, but of regret. Nobody expects a poet to be a man of business, but for his failure to make poetry pay, whether Lawson blames himself or others, he should not blame Australia, which admires and loves and liberally encourages him. Again, the idea is simply that Lawson, this is what Stevens wrote, Lawson made a bad bargain with his publishers, but after all, it was Lawson who made the bargain. So again, as with um, Ted Brady, Stevens is saying, you know, Henry, the problem is really of your own making, and to suggest that people need to flee the country, or if they're going to stay, they should stay and kill themselves, uh, themselves is a, a, a ludicrous suggestion. And so, you know, clearly these people are not at all happy with Henry Lawson at this stage. In chapter 18 of your book, Mates, you pick up on Brady's and Stephen's suggestion that Lawson, you know, always could find something to complain about and that the grass was always greener on the other side. And you write that Lawson packed his bags, his babies and his wife and with a suitcase-sized chip on his shoulder, set off for what he expected would be greener pastures and greater recognition and appreciation in England. So I'm wondering, could you just tell us a, a little bit about how Lawson's time in England came, came about? Yeah, well, in a piece that we will make mention of again later on, uh, a piece called Grimy Old Babylon. So Henry talks about uh, going to England and he, he, he specifies there that uh, it was Lord, uh, I guess, Beauchamp, Beauchamp, I guess, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but it was him who provided the funds. Now, this was William Ligon, who was the seventh Earl, again, I guess it's Beauchamp, uh, he provided the money. He was uh, five years younger than Henry, 
and he had been uh, the governor of New South Wales. He actually was only 27 when he was governor of New South Wales. But so he was from England, and at this stage he was back in England, but he was always an admirer of Henry Lawson's writing. And in fact, many years later, so 1915, Lawson publishes a book called My Army, Oh My Army, uh, and, it, and he actually dedicates that to this, uh, this Beauchamp. Uh, so yes, I mean, Henry appreciated his support. This was one of the times that, uh, that he provided support. Uh, he provided the funds to, uh, to, to, for Henry to travel to England. And, you know, he, he wasn't the only person, and Henry acknowledges that actually in Grimey Old Babylon. One of the people who, who also provided funds was his publisher at Angus and Robertson. George Robertson gave him money to get established once he made it to England. But so Henry referred in this grimy old Babylon, he referred to this uh, William Ligon as the truest English gentleman who ever came to Australia, who was misunderstood because of his inexperience and boyish enthusiasm. Now, as I said, he was only 27 at the time he was governor, but, it, but that, that misunderstanding that Henry refers to there, it may also have been uh, Ligon's uh, homosexuality, which didn't become public for many years, but uh, I mean, I don't know at all, but that, that may be part of what Henry's referring to there when he says he was misunderstood because of his inexperience and boyish enthusiasm. Okay, and then while he was in London, he wrote a series of letters addressed to a Jack Cornstalk. Who, who is this Jack Cornstalk and what, if anything, was Lawson's motivation for writing to him? Yeah, well, so first off, so Hen uh, Jack Cornstalk is, is just one of uh, Henry's fictional characters. When, when Henry returned to Australia, he uh, had this idea that he would write about Australia for an English market and write about England for the Australian market. And I believe that these letters were an attempt in that direction. These letters, these three letters to Jack Cornstalk, were published in a book called Triangles of Life, which came out in uh, 1913. So I think that that's, uh, that's what the intent was here, that he's going to write about his experiences in London and, and what uh, England was like generally. And he felt that Australians would be interested in finding that out. Of course, uh, you know, Australia and, and England remain a long way apart, but of course they were even further apart back in those days where people couldn't just jump on an aeroplane. You know, it was, it was a very different experience that uh, Henry was describing. And of course there was lots of interest in England as the mother country. And so he publishes these letters. The first letter, you know, talks about his arrival in England he, he makes mention of the fact that he wants to record his first impressions. Mm -hmm. We saw his desire to do that when we talked about New Zealand. He published his first impressions. He also did the same thing in Burke. When we later on in a future episode, when we talk about his uh, time in Leeton, we'll see that he also does the same thing. So in this particular case, he, he talks about this mania that he has for recording first impressions before they're lost before they're altered. And, you know, he talks about uh, the fact that he was met by Buster's father, and Buster is one of his mates in Australia, uh, Nelson Illingworth, who was a sculptor. So he was part of uh, Henry's drinking circle, the Dawn and Dusk uh, Club of Drinkers. 
And so his father lived in England and, and presumably his mother as well. Um, so that's who, that's who the family stayed with initially. The Buster's father met us at the docks. You remember the day I took you to the Buster's studio in Sydney and he showed you how to make men out of mud? And so that is a reference to, um, to this Nelson Illingworth, the Buster, being a sculptor. And one of the other first impressions Henry recorded was, we expect to find English people cold, reserved, and inhospitable, and are not disappointed. So I, <laughs> I thought that that was uh, interesting, that he wasn't disappointed by that expectation. I, I find it interesting, actually, in the first two letters, that the portrait of London that Lawson presents is an extension of what you just what you just quoted it's a rather negative portrait would you agree with that assessment and if so would that have been met with any resistance from his readers or how would that have been received um yeah i'm not sure about that i think in australia you know there would have been well again think about that distance uh, there would have been a lot of people who who had no evidence to the contrary, so I think that they would perhaps have been surprised, but would have just been believing. Uh, yeah, but th that general portrayal in these first couple of letters is, ra you know, Henry's feeling rather underwhelmed. But again, that's a grass is greener sort of an idea. Oh, actually, the, you know, it's not as uh, dazzling as I expected. You know, some of the things in Sydney are just as um, breathtaking. In fact. You know, there's a you know the shearing sheds in the outback are just as uh, dazzling, and those sorts of ideas. One of the things, one of the places that he makes mention of as being underwhelming is the Bank of England, uh -huh. and he talks about getting lost and 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 uh, you know he couldn't sort of recall the directions he'd been given, but he sort of decides he'll just keep going back to the Bank of England and then sort of radiating out from there. And then when he starts to get a bit turned around, he'll go back to the Bank of England and radiate out from there. And he talks about the Bank of England being um, underwhelming, as I said. And so he says sometimes he can't even find his way back to the Bank of England because it's not big enough, not grand enough. And sometimes he gets to the Bank of England and asks people for directions to the Bank of England and he's told, well, you're, you're right there. Now, when I... Uh, when I was last in London, I visited these places that Henry specifies in these letters. And um, I took the underground to the Bank of England. And I, you know, when you come out of the underground, you pop up, and you're not sure where you're popping up. And so I popped up and I looked around and I couldn't see anything that indicated a Bank of England anywhere. And I asked as a man and a woman walking past and I said to them, excuse me, can you direct me to the Bank of England? And they laughed and they said, you're right there. And I thought that is magnificent that I had exactly, this is a uh, hundred and whatever it was, 120 years later. I think I might've asked the same people that Henry asked for directions. <laughs> and they, they laughed, as I said, and they said, you're right there, mate. And then they went off on their way laughing and I was standing right beside it. There was no signs and there was nothing terribly grand. So I can understand Henry's experience. And, you know, I've spent a lot of my life actually uh, visiting places that Henry visited and walking in Henry's footsteps. And I just thought right there I had that experience. It was probably as close to the experience Henry had as any other. And as I say, maybe I even asked the same people that Henry asked and got the same response. 
Another place that he talks about going is uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. And I, you know, I went to the statues. He talks about the statues. And I went to those same statues. And I had Henry's descriptions of the statues. And I must say that I was quite a bit more impressed by those statues than Henry seemed to be. Henry wrote after his description of them, uh, Now let any intelligent Englishman who reads this go into St. Paul's and look at these groups and decide as to whether the sculptors were impudent humbugs or I'm one. And I have to <laughs> confess that uh, when I was there and looking at these uh, statues, I decided that Henry was one. He was one of these impudent humbugs for his rather blasé and, and negative descriptions. And just generally, you know, St. Paul, uh, Paul's Cathedral was just one of those places that Henry found underwhelming. Now, he also went to a, uh, he lived in a place called Harpenden, uh, and that's the third letter. He talks about his experiences living in that English village, Harpenden. And I went there, and on another podcast, maybe even a couple of times, I've mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, there's this white lion, and this is actually where Henry refers to it as the blue lion. And there's no white lion in Harpenden anymore, but there is a pizza place that used to be the white lion. So, yeah, so I went to these places and got shown around in Harpenden, uh, these different uh, locations that Henry refers to in that third letter. And, you know, he's really, he talks a lot in that third letter about the class structure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that is quite humorous, the way that Henry talks about it is he just makes some really small purchases at the grocers or at storekeeper, you know, from storekeepers. And they just they they think he's a gentleman, and they won't let him carry home his purchases. And he's you know he says if I go home without them, my wife's not going to be happy. And and but they just won't let him uh, carry them home. Uh, and I guess he he gets this sense that they think that he's he's not capable, he's not strong enough to carry whatever it might be, a bag of sugar or something. And he says. I've probably done more hard graft than any man in this village. And as for walking and carrying, I've tramped 500 miles at a trip in the drought across some of the driest and hottest country out back in Australia and carried a heavy swag and a load of sorrow all the way. So he's referring there back to his time back at Burke. Um, but yeah, here in this English village, because he's supposedly a gentleman and they are essentially his servants, they won't even let him carry his purchases home. And there's lots of places too, um, you know, where uh, he, he wants to talk to the so-called servants and, and they feel uncomfortable because he's of a different, supposedly of a different class, a different and superior class. And in that final, that third letter where he's talking about the Maitland village, he also seems to focus on two other areas that disturb him. And one of them being the shopkeepers. And he says of them that they have no sense of humor or soul. They have no mercy. And there's this like commercialism that he writes about. And it, it seems to really bother him. And then at the same time, he call, calls the, this, quote, struggle to keep up appearances, the curse of England. So it seems like he's dissatisfied well in London with the, you know, with the buildings or underwhelmed, I think is the word you used. And that's perfect. He's underwhelmed with the architecture and the 
and the buildings. And then in the Maitland letter, he, he's underwhelmed with the people and it seems even the s- social structure. Well, he's certainly bothered by that social structure. Um, you know, he thinks that, that he, well, he thinks that this is the cause of much of their problem is, is an inability to, to uh, I guess, uh, drift out of or rise above their class uh, restrictions. You know, he, he talks about democratic ideas and those sorts of things. He sees uh, he sees that these people, and quite rightly, of course, he sees that they shouldn't feel those restrictions. But he says, you know, one of the problems that he refers to is people essentially spending too much money to to give false appearances of, of again of being gentlemen and, and being well off and all of that sort of thing, and they can't afford it. Uh, so yeah, so that's sort of an idea that he does find upsetting, and I think he's genuine in his sentiments. There is that he finds it very, very restrictive, and uh, he wishes that it wasn't that way. And we've talked previously about the fact that you know he he sees Australia having the opportunity to go in different directions where there aren't these class restrictions that uh, that infringe on people's rights and restrict people's uh, mobility and restrict people's opportunities and those sorts of things. So I think he's very genuine there in, in the way that I actually think it hurts his heart to see people in that way really creating problems for themselves because of this class structure. He has, he makes a comment just about how, how the scene hurts his heart. In At the beginning of the piece, he writes, somehow it makes me feel sadder to see them. And he's talking about the children who leave London and come out to the Maitland village. And he says, to see them on the grass and in the sunshine for one day, and to think it's only for one day. And of course he goes on. But you're right, it wasn't just a cognitive reaction. He's not just giving his first impression we also, in these first impressions, see his emotional, the, the, the hurt that came as a result of witnessing what was before him. Right, yeah. And I went to that common. It's, you know, a big grass area. And, and uh, you know, Henry didn't like to go there because he could, you know, he could see, well, you said the children, but they're also elderly, you know, people in wheelchairs, that sort of thing. And he just, he, you know, it was, for him, it, it evoked, uh, you know, a sort of sad or sorrow. It evoked sorrow. Yes. Now, in you've already mentioned Grimy Old Babylon, that article that was presented in the Daily Telegraph in 1902. And in this piece, he, Lawson seems to synthesize the rather pessimistic views that come out in these three letters of the places and the people in London and the surrounding areas. But at, in the, that same piece, he also says that he will return. He will go back, quote, for London calls and one must hear. So can you speak to this, the significance of this, this piece? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, that's that's. I think might might be the very ending, actually, where he said he, mm-hmm. he, it is it is a statement of fact that he will go back. He, he I think his plan is to go back uh, the next year for the northern summer, and the fact is that he actually lives another twenty years and never gets back. So uh, I think that um, you know that that was probably his intention. I think that he still he still saw it as an opportunity for him. However, I also think that he was wanting to paint his, his, his English experiences as successful. And I think that there's a little bit here of a sort of an excuse 
you know, that uh, he had to return because of family affairs and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, he still intends to go back because he still sees uh, a great opportunity there. So I do think that he's perhaps a little bit here covering his tracks and, and pretending that it was more successful because, I mean, it's embarrassing. We, we had uh, earlier uh, with another, another failed venture, the uh, trip to um, uh, Brisbane for the, to work with the Boomerang, and the response was um, to write the shame of going back. And so I think that he is feeling that as well here when he goes back to Australia. And so he's pretending, well, you know, it's, I'm only back for a short while because I've got to get back to England because I'm going to be a wonderful success. So I think that that's a part of what's being expressed there. Alternatively, I mean, he simply did intend to get back. And as I say, in the next 20 years, he never did get back. One of the positive spins that he does place uh, in this particular work, this grimy old Babylon, he does put a very positive, uh, provide a very positive description of the London police. He says, I have the greatest admiration for the London police, the finest body of men in the world. That's quite a different description to the way that he talks about shearers, as we've discussed. But so, yeah, the London police, he says, I've tramped uh, with them many nights. So I think that uh, he did spend, I think, a lot of time just walking around the streets of London and at least partly looking for copy uh, for, for his writing. I think that he also was inspired to see uh, like Dickens um, locations and things like that. And so I do think that he did probably spend hours at a time walking around, you know, London bobbies on their beats. And uh, I think that he enjoyed that. So that was one of the things, certainly, where he was very positive in his description of, of London. Now, Henry, another piece that Henry wrote was uh, a poem called A Voice from the City about his experiences in London. Uh, what, what did you think about uh, that poem, Anne-Marie? Well, I heard your expression, the grass is always, not your expression, but the one that you suggest Lawson embodies the idea that the grass is always greener on the other side because in this poem despite the fact that he had sent the letters and wrote the pieces that seems to lament various aspects of London or British society he bemoans in this poem how how it has changed him and it, it, he seems to be sad about the transformation of this experience in two main ways. And one is that he no longer can connect to the Bush women. And it, at the end, he writes that he perhaps has lost a little connection with the Bush and that he hopes that he will hear the songs of the Bush in a truer, more positive way now that he's had this experience, I was reminded of how he seemed to always romanticize where he was not. And I think that that idea comes out rather significantly. Yeah, it does. I think lots of us are guilty of that, um, but mm -hmm. there's no doubt that Henry was certainly guilty. But I think you're right, that, that feeling of disconnect, you talked about the ending, but even from the very start of that poem, on western plain and eastern hill where once my fancy ranged, the station hands are riding still and they are little changed. But I have lost in London gloom the glory of the day. The grand perfume of wattle bloom is faint and far away. 
So yeah, I think you put it very well that he is feeling a sense of uh, disconnection. Now, perhaps just to conclude our discussion, Lawson, when he returned to Australia, um, there was this feud between A.G. Stevenson and him that resumed. And there was this back and forth piece called The Sweet Uses of London. Can you just tell us what was said there? Stevens wasn't happy with uh, Lawson's pursuing literature in Australia piece, and so he responded. And the same thing here. In the bulletin, uh, Henry presents uh, his, I think, rather positive portrayal of his experiences in London. Uh, he says, when I last, when I last roamed at, at liberty on this page, talking about the red page, when I last roamed at liberty on this page, I advised Australian writers to go to London or Timbuktu or shoot themselves. But what's the use of raking up old things? It only leads to sadness and excitement. My advice still is go to London. Don't, don't bother about eternity or Timbuktu. Go to London. And then he says, I must say this that the smallest men of London journalism are many times larger and more broad-minded and generous than are the little men of Australian literature. And I think Stevens quite rightly uh, took that as a shot at him as supposedly a little man of Australian literature. And so he responded, you know, and he, he referred to... Um, uh, London uh, as a, a filthy hole and he said that Australia's uh, finest talents would do well to avoid London and again he repeated this idea that they should stay in Australia because Australia will continue to support them but yeah certainly this difference of opinion this feud that was brewing um, you know it continued uh, it, it was something that they were feuding about before Henry left and they continued to feud about after Henry returned. So today we have discussed Henry's time and his writings relative to his experiences in England. In our next episode we're going to discuss Henry's uh, failing marriage from this time in his life and the eventual separation from his wife Bertha when they did return to Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with other Lawson enthusiasts. We also encourage you to take a look at the Henry Lawson Memorial and Literary Society. In 2023, the Society will celebrate 100 years of existence. Thanks, Dr. Brian, for giving us insight into Lawson's London experiences. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. I remember, oh man, I remember The tracks that we followed are clear The jovial last nights of December The solemn first days of the year Long tramps through the clearings of the timber Short partings on platform and pier I remember, oh man, I remember the tracks that we followed are clear